Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, unwanted pets and relatives, it's me again, Mr. Palumbo, and welcome to the Professor Liberty Podcast. Here at Professor Liberty, we want to let freedom ring from sea to shining sea. We want to remind everyone listening that it's okay to be proud to be an America. America is a place where if you want to succeed, you can. And that's been the story of America from the very beginning. It is a place of opportunity, a place where immigrants can come looking for liberty. And it's still that way today. People aren't fleeing America. They're taking great risks to get to America. And why is that? It's because America is a land of hope and opportunity. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Today, we're going to continue our series called The First Americans. And we're going to look at the Apache and the Navajo today. So last time, if you remember, we were in the Northwest uh, and we were looking at tribes like the Ness Pierce. Uh, and so we were looking at places like Oregon and Idaho, parts of Utah, parts of Nevada. So now we're going to go straight south and we're going to look at the Southwest. So this is places, uh, you know, Arizona, New Mexico. Uh, New Mexico, you know, if any place embodies the Southwest, it's probably New Mexico. Such a beautiful place. The Southwest is pretty big, though. It goes into Mexico itself, Mexico proper. It covers parts of Southern California, right at the, the border there. It goes into the tip of ne Southern Nevada, and it can go all the way to West Texas. This area is also called the Sun Belt. Did you know we also have a Bible Belt and a Rust Belt? We cover all the belts in geography class when I teach geography. America's got a lot of belts, kind of like a karate student or something. Now, while we start researching for this episode, I noticed that the two groups have a lot in common, which makes sense because geographically they're basically neighbors. The Navajo occupied the area uh, between the border of Arizona and New Mexico to include parts of uh, southern Colorado, while the Apache which consisted of similar or smaller bands, kind of surrounded the Navajo. And uh, the Apache covered an area from Texas to western Arizona. And it's going to be mostly along the southern border of Mexico. Because of this, the Apache have had a colorful history with everybody. The Spanish, the Mexicans, the Anglo-Americans, everybody. Unlike the Hopi... Both the Navajo and the Apache are relative newcomers to the Southwest. Most historians claim that they migrated around 1400 A.D. Well, that's just under 100 years before Columbus's voyage across the Atlantic. So when, when Columbus reaches Hispaniola and the Caribbean, the Apache and the Navajo have only been in their area for about... 90 years. So wait, does that make it their land? I mean, they moved there about the same time as the Europeans' age of exploration was about to blast off. So how long do you have to live somewhere before you can claim it as your, quote, ancestral lands? Just a question, boys and girls, moving on. Both the Navajo and the Apache were semi-nomadic, meaning they did move around some, but they also had permanent structures and villages as well. They embraced the hunter-gathering 
and the farming lifestyles. Now, the Navajo are going to be more of the farmers, and the Apache are going to be more of the hunter-gatherers, but they do both. Uh, There's something interesting that you might not know, but both the Navajo and the Apache would raid the Pueblo tribes. Who are the Pueblo tribes? I'm saying that wrong. Pueblo. Who are the Pueblo tribes? Well, Pueblo Indians, I'm butchering that word, are those that lived in these settlements and these structured called Pueblo, Pueblos. You know, I uh, we used to live, uh, when we lived in California, there was a Mexican restaurant and it was called Mi Pueblitos. Mi Pueblitos. Man, I, sorry folks, moving on. So anyway, the Navajo and the Apache would raid these communities, the Pueblo tribes. Hey, I got it right that time. These Pueblo Indians had a very complex and dynamic culture and religion. You know, there's a connection, uh, and we see this with the advent of the Neolithic Age. Neolithic means new stone. And during the Neolithic Age, people started building cities and villages and they started farming. But there's this thing about when you can settle down and you know where your food's coming from, it makes sense that you have kind of more time to develop higher culture. You know, think about it. A hunter-gatherer society, you're always on the move. There isn't much time to ponder the big questions in life. However, if you're a settled community and you've got a steady food supply, the crops are coming in, you know, you, you can spend a little more time and energy thinking about the deep questions connected to existence. So these Pueblo tribes and the Hopi tribes, they're going to have very complex uh, religions and cultures. Anyway, back to my point, it seems that being stationary was good for culture, like we just pointed out, but it was bad for neighbor relations because it made you an easy target for raiding. That's right, boys and girls, Native American tribes raided each other. They weren't this giant brotherhood of kumbaya. There was competition. There was wars. There were everything that you see in in Western civilization and European history. All those things also happened in Native American history. And if you're sedentary, if if you're a sedentary society, it makes sense that you would get raided because your enemies know where you're going to be all the time because you do not move. And these uh, these raids, these Apache, especially the Apache, these raids would continue when the Spanish came. They would raid Spanish missions. When the Mexicans came, they would raid Mexican ranches and, and things like that. And then, of course, when the Americans were around, they would raid those as well. Now, a lot of the raids, at least for the uh, uh, the Spanish and the Mexican and the Americans, was... You know, it was kind of a sneak attack. They weren't really trying to get into an all-out armed conflict. They were trying to just steal stuff. So they would sneak in at night and try to steal livestock and things like that. Now, we know when we studied the Shoshone that the Shoshone would raid uh, farms and things like that because of they were, they were need, of need. They were starving, right? They didn't have livestock domestic livestock like the white settlers, they relied on the the game, the wild game around their land. And so we know that they raided 
out of desperation and things like that. And I'm sure the Apache towards the end, some of that was uh, also the case. Now, the Apache lived in smaller family units called bands. These bands would consist of a few dozen families. The Navajo lived in larger groups. Most gender roles were the same for both groups, except when it came to building the houses. For the Navajo, building the house was a man's job. But interestingly enough, in the Apache community, the women built the houses. Navajo lived in structures called hogans, which were kind of like sod houses. They were wood-framed, and then they were filled in with mud. The Apache preferred to live in teepees and a structure called a wickiup, or a wick, a wickup, W-I-C-K-I-U-P, wickiup, which is described as a brush-covered hut. The Navajo took great pride in their pottery, jewelry, and other artwork. There were, they were great silversmiths, something they learned from the Mexican traders. You know, if you're from the West or the Southwest, you're probably familiar with Navajo jewelry. Uh, it's going to focus around turquoise and silver. It's very beautiful. I love it. My wife's favorite is turquoise. Her favorite color is turquoise. Uh, turquoise was very important to the Navajo, and they used it in just about every special religious ceremony. They'd even use it in an attempt to find water. So they thought, you know, to them it was a very holy thing. It was a very special thing, and many of them believed that it had sacred powers. How do you know if something is authentic Navajo jewelry? Well, I'm glad you asked. According to southwesternjewelry.com, quote, Navajo jewelry is known for its large turquoise stones and big, heavy silver. Navajo artists do also incorporate inlay or cluster-style stones, although they tend to use heavier silver than other southwestern tribes like the Hopi or the Zuni. Navajo artists may also keep the original free-form shape of the stone rather than cutting it. So instead of making it into a heart or a diamond or a circle or a square, they kind of keep the natural curves of the rock. The most defining characteristic of Navajo jewelry tend to be its heavy weight and general, quote, clunkiness, unquote. The article finishes by saying, if a Navajo piece feels frail or lightweight, you may want to check your source to make sure it's authentic. Here's a little tie-in with modern history. You might have heard that the Navajo about the Navajo code talkers of World War II. Even though other native tribes were used as code talkers, the Navajo are the most known of the bunch. Well, how did code talking work? Well, according to National www.museum.org, most code talkers were assigned in pairs to a military unit. During battle, one person would operate the portable radio, while the second person would relay a message in the native language and translate it to them in English. Their work was highly dangerous, especially in the Pacific, because Japanese soldiers would deliberately target officers, medics, and radio men, and code talkers had to keep moving as they transmitted their messages. 
the work of hundreds of code talkers was essential to Allied victory in World War II, and they were present at many important battles, including Utah Beach during D-Day invasion in France and Iwo Jima in the Pacific. In fact, the 5th Marine Division's single officer, Major Howard Connor, stated, quote, If it were not for the Navajos, the Marines would have never taken Iwo Jima, unquote. That's a powerful statement. The ironic thing about using code talkers, however, is that many of the individuals asked to participate in helping the United States during World War II grew up being told that their native tongues were a bad thing. National WW2 Museum writes it this way, The irony of being asked to use their native language to fight on the behalf of America was not lost on the code talkers many of whom had been forced to attend government or religious-run boarding schools that tried to assimilate native peoples and would punish students for speaking their traditional language, unquote. As of 2020, last year, only four of these original code talkers were still alive today. Okay, let's go back to the Apache. Another distinction between the Navajo and the Apache is that the Apache were known as fierce warriors, kind of like the Comanche, these horse warrior people. Tales of their bravery and endurance abound. I mean, you can read all over the place where tales of their fierceness and their endurance and their perseverance, uh, they were a very tough people. Uh, and and no, no one embodies that more than who I want to talk about now. We can't talk, we can't talk about the Apache without discussing the most famous Apache, Geronimo. History.com introduces him this way, and I can't write it any better, so I'm just going to quote it. Geronimo was an Apache leader and medicine man best known for his fearlessness in resisting anyone, Mexican or American, who attempted to remove his people from their tribal lands. He repeatedly evaded capture and life on a reservation. And during his final escape, a full quarter of the U.S. standing army pursued him and his followers. When Geronimo was captured on September 4, 1886, he was the last Native American leader to formally surrender to the U.S. military. He spent the last 20 years of his life as a prisoner of war. Unquote. Geronimo is a fascinating figure, uh, and unfortunately, like ma- like many in history, the the fascinating figures didn't leave didn't live boring lives. His life was filled with strife and tragedy. His family, when he was very young, a very young man, his wife and children were killed by Mexican forces, and uh, he spent the rest of his life until his capture trying to avenge their deaths. Legend has it that after his family's murder, he heard a voice when he was in the forest telling him that no gun would ever kill him. Well, whether that's true or not, it seems to play out since Geronimo constantly evaded Mexican as well as American forces. Did you know that Geronimo took part in President Roosevelt's inauguration parade? History.com writes it this way. Geronimo's most famous appearance came in March 4, 1905, when he took part in President Theodore Roosevelt's inaugural parade in Washington, D.C. 
Flanked by five other native leaders, the elderly warrior rode a pony down Pennsylvania Avenue, eliciting cries of hooray for Geronimo from spectators. The meaning of the name Geronimo is unknown. During World War II, paratroopers began shouting his name before they leaped from the plane, which became a tribute to his bravery. So there are a few legends on how this came to be. Okay, there's about three or four legends. I got a couple to share with you. The first one is that it came about through a bet to prove that a certain paratrooper wasn't afraid to jump. So the story goes that the night before the jump, some guys were out watching a Western that had Geronimo in it. And after some test teasing, one guy said to the other, to prove he's not afraid, he's going to yell out Geronimo as loud as he can for all to hear. The second story claims that during one of the hot pursuits of Geronimo, this one's my favorite. So during one of these famous hot pursuits of Geronimo, where a quarter of the military, the army's following him. Well, when they got to Medicine Bluffs near Fort Sill, Oklahoma, Geronimo leaped with his horse down this steep slope, yelling his own name as he fell. Well, he survived this impossible jump, stopping the army from pursuing him, and again, he escaped capture. Well, there you have it, folks, the Navajo and the Apache, two great peoples that have left an impressionable mark on the character of this country. And again, it just blows my mind that these people who were oppressed and abused by the United States government would then turn around and help fight wars for the country that once oppressed them. You know, same thing with African Americans. It's just, it shows the great character of someone to look past, uh, past grievances and past abuses and past, you know, uh, mistreatment and stand up and fight for a country that not necessarily has fought for you. And I just want to remind everybody, this is America, folks. This idea that America is a white country, you know, the Spanish, well, the Spanish are white, but the Spanish were here before the English were here. You got to remember, the English were latecomers to the party. America, since the age of exploration, has had Spanish and it's had uh you know, black people, it's had white people, it's had, you know, the Asians are going to come, you know, during the gold rush. So that's 1840s, right? We've all been here at various times in the history of the United States. And there's been racial strife all that time as well. It's not new. It's not something new. However, I would say that we are, if you looked at America today, we are integrating more and more. I mean, we have mixed, you know, I remember when the census came out in 2000, there was a big hoopla about mixed races. Well, go back and look at the 2000 census, look at the 2010 census, and look at the 2020 census, and you're seeing that under ethnicity, America is mixing together. And maybe some of that will eventually alleviate some of these so-called race wars and, you know, race conflicts. But I tell you one thing we can't lose sight of, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't matter what color you are, but we have to continue to believe in the founding principles. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. 
three branches of government, federalism. They get authority by the consent of the governed. If we lose these things, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, all of the other eight amendments, the kids are not buying into this anymore. People are not buying into this anymore. And that's going to be our destruction. That's going to be our downfall, boys and girls. Like I said, it doesn't matter what color you are, but you got to believe in the American ideas. That is non-negotiable because as soon as we get away from those, we're going to be like every other country on the planet, some big socialist third world country. That's what we're going to be. And instead of uh, people fleeing to come to America, they're going to be fleeing to leave to America. And Ronald Reagan had a great quote, and I'll leave you with this. He said, if we lose freedom here, there is no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. Here at Professor Liberty, we seek to educate, inspire, and restore. If you like this podcast, please give me a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to email the show, the email is professorliberty1776 at gmail.com. Please send me your history, your government, or your economics questions there. You can also message me on Facebook. I'm also on Parlor. If you'd like to look at my lessons and activities, please go to teacherspayteachers.com. Until next time, go throughout the land and proclaim liberty. Liberty.